So then we go on to the next station, which is our live rattling rattlesnake. Um, using the wild pissy ones is good for this because they have a really good response. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they just throw their tail into high gear and that sound is going. And that way the dog can associate like literally looking at the snake up in this like S defensive pose. It's mm-hmm. looking at it. It's hearing the rattle and it's smelling it all at the mm-hmm. same time. Yeah. And like, as soon as the dog pays attention and cues off to the snake you get another zap. Hey friends, and welcome to the Modern Medusa podcast. friends welcome back to the modern medusa podcast this is your host dominique defalco of defalco reptiles i am very excited for today's podcast like i always say because i'm always like super excited about these um i want to give a huge thank you to everyone who joined the patreon it is very exciting i am doing like previews of our episodes and we're going to have some events happening and then also just like you know behind the scenes stuff so if you're interested please take a look at the patreon in the uh, comments below And I want to give a big shout out to our two uh, partner Patreons right now. So at our highest tier, you get a shout out on our, on our shows. So that would be Carly Jones and Joe Rosa. Um, You guys are both incredible, have been supportive of me since the beginning, and they both have really awesome animals and are just really great all around people. So I recommend you look them up. So thank you both for your support. And then on the Patreon, if you're interested in joining, you get really great discounts to all of our merch. We're going to have some events just do like a bunch of cool stuff. So thank you always for supporting the podcast. And then again, a huge thank you to Summer Grace Mitchell for our awesome intro. I've really loved that. So today I'm very excited to speak with Chelsea Richardson. Chelsea is a man. She's just kind of like an all around cool lady. And <laughs> she does a ton of stuff, including owning an exotic animal uh, pet sitting service. She has worked with elephants at a zoo. And then she also is really big into uh, pres- preservation of animals that have passed. So we're going to have a really cool talk today. So Chelsea, hello. Hi, happy to join. I am so excited to have you here. Thanks so much. Of course. So where should we start? Okay. So just tell me a little bit about yourself. Who are you? You know, let's kind of get into it. Like, what do you work with? And, and then we'll kind of go through your history of getting started with animals. Yeah. So my name is Chelsea Richardson. Um, I'm 27. I'm out here in Tucson, Arizona. And currently my work consists of my exotic only pet sitting business, scaled sitting and services. Mm -hmm. So pretty much anything that's not a cat or a dog falls under my category. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also doing wildlife services, which is basically anything from raccoons in your chimney to rattlesnakes on your porch. Um, I mostly deal with the snakes part of that. I do Mm -hmm. relocation. Um, I get at least a few snake hauls every day and we relocate them to better spots within their little tiny range. Um, and we also do rattlesnake avoidance training for dogs, which is really important out here in the desert. 
That is so cool. And we're definitely going to get into that, but I have a question for you about your relocation first. So I work with a reptile rescue and I am in Kentucky slash Ohio. The amount of people who call me saying there's a Python in my yard and it's a rat <laughs> snake. Do you get that? Like, or do All most people kind of know what they're getting out in Arizona? <laughs> We don't, we do get some actual exotics out here. We have picked up ball pythons and like mm-hmm. parrots and things like that. But most of the time it's people just not knowing our own native species that we have here. Right. Um, all, most of what we have is rattlesnakes, but the other snakes that people are seeing are gopher snakes, king snakes. Um, and a lot of people just they don't know how to ID them out here. Mm-hmm. So we mm-hmm. get everything from, oh, there's two snakes on my porch fighting over a mouse when it was really just one gopher snake and they thought the tail pattern was a completely different snake. Oh, so yeah, I can see that. <laughs> it's a lot of varied situations. Are you like a government employee or are you working through a, uh, a private program for this? Uh, so we are a private company, uh, animal experts. We've been in Arizona for, uh, 31 years, I believe now. And my two bosses are the ones who do this, Mark and Jeff. Um, I only just recently joined the team at like the very beginning of this year. Mm -hmm. Um, Mark and I had met each other previously through some of my wildlife rehabilitation work and them Mm -hmm. dropping off animals, but it wasn't until more recently that I decided to join on their team pretty much specifically for reptiles and the rattlesnakes. Yeah. I I mean, I could see that being a huge need out there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's definitely, I want to go into this rattlesnake avoidance, but that's like too exciting of a topic to start off with. (laughs) So we have to know a little bit more about you first. So um, did you always grow up in Arizona? So I'm actually from California. Um, Okay. (laughs) Bay area all around their whole life until I was 18. Um, we had like a leopard gecko and a red eared slider when I was really young, but Mm -hmm. that was kind of about it. Um, we had, we didn't have any other reptiles until I was actually a junior in high school. Mm -hmm. My mom finally caved and let me get a leopard gecko from pet smart right before you go to college. Yeah. Real basic thing. (laughs) And, um, Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was a kid, like I was always the one holding the snakes and playing with the bugs. So it's always been there Mm -hmm. um, for me. But so I got my first leopard gecko right before junior year of high school. And I still have her today. Her name is Loki. She's still perfectly wonderful. Um, But she's really what started it for me. And Mm -hmm. after that, I caught a couple of more leopard geckos. They've all passed on. And when I first started, it was the real basic Kelsey sand, you know, like horrible, basic Mm -hmm. Petco level care, of course. Mm -hmm. Of course, Um, that's where you start. Right. (laughs) But I laugh at it now because it's so bad. But it takes time to get to where you are. Um, So right after high school, I was 18. I had met a guy online Mm -hmm. and I, he was out here in Tucson. So that's really the reason I came out here was because of him. Oh, Um, okay, cool. We met online. We had been friends for a couple of years and we were like, Hey, why don't I just, I'm like done with school now. Why don't I just come out to Tucson? Mm -hmm. And so that's pretty much exactly what I did. Um, he came out, met my family and we packed up my stuff and drove out here to Tucson. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, and that was the very beginning of October in 2013. Okay. So you've kind of like made 
you're like home for yourself in Tucson. It's been like six, seven years now out here. Yeah. yeah. And this is definitely my home. So you mentioned when you were younger that you were like always picking up bugs and that you were always like playing with snakes and that you had to, that your mom finally like quote unquote caved. Mm. Was this a hobby or a passion that your parents encouraged? And was it something that you noticed your siblings were into as well? Or was this kind of uniquely yours? It certainly was something my mom supported once I moved out of the house. (laughs) That is a good delineation. Yes. So the thing, the thing in high school was the bugs, the feeding, the crickets and the worms that was Mm -hmm. the defining factor, but finally that's what caved. Um, And so it's certainly something she supports now that I'm out of the house, Mm -hmm. but she has come to visit and like, she won't, they won't sleep in the house or anything. They go get a hotel. (laughs) Like nobody wants to stay here in the house. That's That's fine. A benefit though. Right. It is. That's fine with me. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But it is something that has always been with me. My only other sibling was actually born when I was 18. Um, I have a little brother, Mason. He's like, eight nine now does he think like you're the coolest thing ever he does honestly yeah I would too. Um, I have absolutely pushed and gotten him into animals and bugs he loves all of that kind of stuff um they even had pet snails for a while mm-hmm. when I first started my snail hobby and they actually have a crested gecko now that they mm-hmm. got from me so I mean they're they're getting there you know my mom yeah. loves the crested gecko but that's about her extent <laughs> moms, moms always <laughs> love the geckos she like, does it's adorable my mom loves my geckos like she thinks they're the cutest things in the world and I'm like, we should have gotten these when I was eight <laughs> <laughs> so okay so you moved to um yeah so I came out G- here to Tucson, Tucson. Um, me and my new boyfriend, his name is Doug, my husband, Doug. Okay. Um, I was wondering if it was your husband. <laughs> yes. We're I married now. Ask. <laughs> um, so we came out here to Tucson and we're living in an apartment with a friend of ours. So within very first two weeks of coming out here is the reptile expo. <laughs> so it's like such a dangerous place. It is. So of course, (laughs) within the first two weeks, I just moved out. Like I've got free reign now. And what did I do? I bring home my first ball Python Mm -hmm. and she's just a normal wild female. Um, she ended up passing away a few years later due to IBD actually. Mm -hmm. Um, but so she was my first snake. I got her within like two weeks of moving here. (laughs) <laughs> and pretty quickly I found started finding work for myself in reptiles. The first was place this I f- something was sorry. So was that did you always know that reptiles was your main interest? Like as opposed to other animals, or is it something I would say that you so. realized? Yeah. yeah. I just and I so, really have always loved them. And when your now husband, you know, was like, Hey, come move to Tucson with me. Were you like, yeah, that's fine. But I will be getting a bunch of reptiles. Or was that kind of like, I did not warn him. No. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I I don't really think I um, expected myself to go as much as I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, like mm-hmm. in the start, I like most people, when you first start in the reptile hobby, you tend to go a little wild and yeah. get too many things at the start. And that's, yeah. that's pretty much what I did as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so because right after I started working, I started working at this, um, Tucson reptile rescue 
Mm-hmm. They've been shut down for years now, but it was just a, you know, little local reptile rescue nonprofit. Um, I was there, I think like every freaking day, not getting paid or anything. I just was <laughs> there because I wanted to be there. Yeah. I wanted to be there helping with the reptiles and the iguanas. And they had this amazing black throat monitor Godzilla. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the best. And so I started there and that's where I got a lot of my first animals. And I, I still have most of them today as well from the rescue. Mm-hmm. So when you were at the rescue, what kind of, I mean, you mentioned a few, but was it like very basic animals, ball pythons, beardies? Yeah, it was a lot of sulcatas, iguanas, yeah. ball pythons, mm-hmm. Colombian boas. We had an anaconda at one point. Um, oh, geez. <laughs> very kind of basic stuff. Nothing too crazy. Mm-hmm. Your basic That's rescue. so funny. It, it cracks me up that like, I know like for most people listening, you're going to like roll your eyes, but it still cracks me up to be talking to friends. And so I'm being like, yeah, we had an anaconda, nothing too crazy. Like anyone <laughs> else would think that's absolutely insane. But for like us, we're like, yeah, nothing too crazy. Right. It's just an anaconda. <laughs> yeah. It's like, whatever. You see this every week. It was quite <laughs> friendly too. Honestly, it was really sweet. I've heard they're great. And I just, I can't do it yet. That's just I need too a much house. space. Yeah. That's yeah. too much room. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was there, I got my Hulk, who is my Toke Gecko. Mm-hmm. He is crazy old at this point. He's like 13. Oh, wow. And he's huge. He's a huge, huge male. Mm-hmm. And I got, I've had him for six years. And, and what was his, what's his demeanor like? Honestly, he's not that bad. Back in the day, I used to be able to like actually just hand feed him and like hold him. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't really mess with him much anymore, but he's still not nearly as bad as most tokes. Mm -hmm. Um, I also got a giant Madagascar day gecko from the rescue. I still have her and all these six, seven years, all she's done is poop on the front door of her enclosure. Uh, yeah. Anybody okay, so. who owns day geckos <laughs> knows what I'm talking about. I have, I have a gargoyle gecko and I love him to death, but I think it's a boy because I noticed my first like messy front of the enclosure. And I was like, no, I, I swear she girl. does it on purpose. <laughs> I swear she does it on purpose. That's like the only place in her enclosure. She poops is on the front glass of her door. And it just I mean, drives at least me crazy. You can find it. You don't have to like yeah. look it's for easy it. to clean. She's yeah. not too bad either. She's not crazy spazzy. Like most of them are. Mm-hmm. Um, so the do other you find- thing I got there. Mm-hmm. Um, was uh, my first Colombian boa, Alice. I still have her too. She's a bit of a bitch. (laughs) I've had her since she was a baby. And she's, I mean, she's a full grown Colombian boa at this point. And she's in like a big five by three enclosure. And she still strikes at me constantly. Was, do you know anything about her like background? She was dropped off as, as a baby. So I've oh, had her okay. all these years and so she's it wasn't still... like abuse or anything. No, she still just doesn't like anybody. <laughs> all right. Well, you know, but that's okay. like that too. So did you find yourself when you first got started, like getting your own pets, did you find yourself attracted to specific species over others? Or were you just kind of like all in anything? In the very beginning, it was very much just like what I could get my hands on. Mm -hmm. what was there and available. Like Mm -hmm. if you had asked me now, I definitely would not be getting another day gecko. Like there's no Mm -hmm. way I would be getting that at this point in my life. Um, but I still have her because once I, I'm a very much person who once I get something they're with me for like ever, 
until yeah. something happens or they die. Like mm-hmm. they're, I don't get rid of animals. So, <laughs> so when you are, when you first got started with these animals, so you're, you're mentioning a couple, like I think the the day gecko specifically and then the toke, people have a tendency to use more elaborate, like bioactive setups for these because they aren't as much like play with animals. Definitely. What, is your, what does your setups look like when you first got started? Um, when I, I did pretty much hit the bioactive train, like right off the bat, when I first started keeping, especially the geckos, um, I started off with the standard 18 by 24 exoterras that I still mm-hmm. use. Um, I actually have upgraded ones now, but I started doing bioactive pretty early on and all of my enclosures are still bioactive today. Um, but they're nicer and have more space and more plants and are on misting systems, seven years ago when you're getting into the hobby more seriously, where were you getting your info from? Like, did you have a community that you're a part of? Were you in Facebook groups on forums? Like where was your info coming from? Not a whole lot of places, mostly like most of the beginners, Google, um, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of Facebook groups here and there, mm-hmm. but it really has developed into a much larger thing over these last several years. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there was, I don't feel like I mean, maybe it was there, maybe the community was there that long ago, but I didn't, I wasn't aware of it back Mm -hmm. then. So it was a lot of basic Google misinformation kind of stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So you kept, you, you got your Colombian boa. So what was coming after that? Um, I kind of started going a bit snake and gecko crazy after Mm -hmm. that. Um, I started, I got a Woma Python, a transpacos rat snake after that. Gorgeous. I love him. Yeah. He's beautiful. He is beautiful. And he's like about 10 years old at this point as well. Um, I also have a Northern pine snake, Mm -hmm. uh, a San Diego gopher snake and a ball Python. Mm Mm-hmm. The ball python does have a fun story. Oh, tell it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So her name is Grand because she was found on Grand Cayman Island. What? Like literal like Grand Cayman Islands. Um, She was found roaming in the wilds of the Iguana Reservation. So that I'm I, Googling Grand Cayman Islands because <laughs> I want to make sure I'm thinking of the right place. Yes, you are. A dumbass. You are. Okay. That's what I thought. Cause I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I did some work over there with the department of environment, um, doing mm-hmm. the native iguana studies, mm-hmm. doing like data collection, uh, catching that kind of work. And yeah. so they have the, the Grand Cayman blue iguanas out there. Those right. big, beautiful blue iguanas, Lewis eyes. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, um, so there's a sectioned off like nature preserve for the iguanas there on the Island. Mm-hmm. And some of the researchers were walking through during their surveys and they found her <laughs> just like living her best life out there. Oh, and, God, um, I can't even imagine how like <laughs> devastating as a researcher that is to find though. Like that's not what you I, it was see. crazy. It was definitely not what they were expecting to find. Um, and thankfully it's the only one that I would know of. Okay, good. It looks so, it was just like someone's released pet, I guess. I had to have been smuggled in to begin mm-hmm. with because that's highly illegal and right. either released or escaped at some point. Yeah. Probably <sighs> released. Um, so they obviously took her back and the choices were either find her a home in the United States or euthanasia. Mm-hmm. 
of course, nobody wanted to euthanize because she's beautiful. Yeah. Um, is she like a wild type or just a normal? She's, you know, we've never really gotten a super clear answer on what we think her morph is, but some kind of like pastel to her. Mm-hmm. She's okay. just really pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she went through like a whole vet exam, ex- um, like quarantine procedure there on the island. And then she was personally flown over to the United States to the Miami Zoo mm-hmm. where she stayed with a keeper there for like another month and went under like more vet care and like more quarantine assessment. Mm-hmm. And then from there, <laughs> she was driven all the way back to Tucson, Arizona from Florida and given to me. Oh my God. <laughs> So, cause one of the department of environment people who I worked with there, she yeah. messaged me when they found her and she's like, Hey, we got to find a home for this snake. Like, mm-hmm. would you be willing to do that? And I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, sure. Like that's, that's awesome. I'd be happy to. And so all in all, like, I mean, she's got like special paperwork and everything. That is, that is like the most insane story. Yeah. It's a bit of an odd one. And how old do you think she is? Like, I'm assuming she's an she's adult. She's definitely an adult. Um, I got her, that was in like mid 2018. So okay. I've had her for a couple years. Okay. So you mentioned you're working with the Department of Natural Resources, was it? Yeah, the Department of Environment. Department of Environment. How the hell did you start doing that? Um, so you've had a lot of jobs. You've had a lot of very it's, interesting jobs. Yeah. I, I tend to skip around a lot. And a big part of it is me taking all these opportunities that mm-hmm. presented themselves. Mm-hmm. So it all kind of like loops back around actually. So okay. while I was working at the reptile rescue back when I was like 18, 19, yeah. this woman walked in and she's like, Hey guys, I just moved to town from Texas mm-hmm. and I've got a bunch of iguanas. Does anybody mm-hmm. want to help me take care of them? I just like raised my hand. I'm like, I like <laughs> lizards. I like iguanas. What can I do? What kind of and, iguanas were they? Well, it turned out to literally be like the best job and best connection ever because yeah. Jill, this woman, she's still one of my dear friends all these mm-hmm. years later. And I still look after her animals. Oh, um, oh so this is like where you got started yes, pet sitting. This is the iguana lady. Oh God. <laughs> okay. Okay. So she kind of is what originally started my pet sitting back before it was ever official for anything. Um, she's got several rhino iguanas. She's mm-hmm. got Cuban iguanas, just regular green iguanas. She's got the Chuck Wallas. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, in total, it's, it varies between like at least 15 iguanas at any various time. That is, that <laughs> is a certain type of person. It is. Well, so she's an iguana biologist. Okay. So she's a biologist. She's not just someone yes. with a bunch of, a- okay, right. As much, she's not just sense. like a crazy lady. Um, well, she I is mean, a biologist. All kind of crazy, but it just <laughs> like iguanas uh, scare the hell out of me. That is just They're not a special, special animal for sure. Yeah. Like I just Googled Cuban iguana. Cause I couldn't remember what they looked like in the third picture is two males, like obviously fighting covered in blood. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mm, Oh yeah. Maybe very sharp me. teeth. Yeah. <laughs> so so she's she got the all these one, iguanas. Is she the one who got you started with yours? Yes. And these are actually, mine are from hers. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so she had all these iguanas and I, she goes out of town a lot for like lengthy periods of time, um, to do iguana research actually. Mm-hmm. So I would stay behind and take care of her iguanas. Well, after the years went by, um, she started taking other trips and I started kind of having an opportunity to actually join her mm-hmm. rather than staying behind and looking after her iguanas. Okay. So that's how I got work over. Um, I did both Grand Cayman and Cayman Brack, which is the smaller island there. Okay. And then can I ask, did you have any, like after high school, any more education, like in biology or anything? Um, it's funny because everybody asks me that. They're like, well, what'd you go to school for to do this? I didn't. <laughs> that's, I think that's great. I think that's um, so cool. <laughs> I just didn't. I, after high school, I did back in California, I took a couple of courses. I was there for a semester or two, um, in a community college, just to enroll basic general ed. Mm-hmm. And then when I came out here, it was never something I had an interest in starting back up. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of always found other work to do. I just kept myself occupied. I never felt mm-hmm. a reason that I needed to go back. Yeah. So I didn't. I'm like, I am, I did like get a, formal college education but I am such an advocate for like you don't really need it nowadays and a lot of people talk about how you need it to get like get into zoos and aquariums it's really not as true as people would think right you just need to have experience yeah you need to be willing I mean as much as it sucks you need to be willing to do a lot of unpaid work oh absolutely to get the jobs you really want I mean um I didn't have the formal education for this but compared to somebody who's like just now got their degree and getting into the field. Like if Mm -hmm. we're the same age, I've got all those years of actual hands-on experience. So speaking of such, you were really bouncing around just because I think this is so, your timeline is so interesting. (laughs) So at what point did you start working with elephants? So that was the Reed Park Zoo. That was a volunteer program. I did. Okay. a lot of volunteer work through the years. Yes. I've done a lot of unpaid work. Um, yeah, but like you kind of have to do where, right. I find that a lot of doing a lot of the unpaid work leads to a lot of these really amazing opportunities. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't at Reed Park Zoo for all too long, um, maybe like a year. Okay. But I was basically just doing grunt work, elephant shoveling poop. I was literally shoving elephant shit. Like, did you interact with the elephants at all? We did to a point. Um, like we kind of assisted in doing like the training and enrichment parts. Um, mm-hmm. The enrichment for them was my favorite thing. Mm-hmm. I making these huge popsicles and doing all this like crazy giant stuff, mm-hmm. um, but nothing, nothing like too, too crazy. Cause we were volunteers. So, right. right. Okay. So let's get back on track. So back okay. to the iguana lady. So, so um, she was the one who got you started with like doing department of environment work. Mm-hmm. So she, of course, being a guana biologist, she has a lot of connections with those type of people. She's done work out there multiple times. She's mm-hmm. done all that. So I just kind of got connected with the right people and they needed help and assistance. And I just kind of raised my hand again and said, Hey, I'll come out and help, you mm-hmm. know? So, so at this time you are, how long into you living in Tucson is this? Um, so the iguana work was in about 2017 and 2018. Okay. So your husband, you guys were married at that point. 
Yes. So what was, he, um, what's his thought surrounding all of this? <laughs> so I actually do have to give him credit because a lot of the reason why I was able to do a lot of what I have been able to and do my own business and all of this is because he's been here in the background, like supporting me this whole mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Um, we got married when we were really young. We got married when I was 20. Oh, so wow. Couldn't even have champagne. Right. Actually, it's kind of sad. My 21st birthday was kind of sad. Um, (laughs) So we got married when I was 20. He's eight years older than me. Mm -hmm. And he was in the Air Force. So we got like courthouse married right before he left for a deployment. Okay. And we had just moved into our own apartment at that time. Um, Mm -hmm. And I had got like my dog and I've got like a little reptile collection going at this point. Like maybe like eight eight things at this point (laughs) whole little office full and um so yeah we got married and I'm 20 he's off on deployment like my 21st birthday rolls around when he's gone still and Mm -hmm. I just like went to the gas station bought myself a bottle of wine and came home (laughs) (laughs) yeah sometimes that's sometimes that's how it works out (laughs) that's okay um so he's just been really supportive throughout all of these years and Mm -hmm. he's you know like I didn't have to work if I didn't want to but I chose to do what I wanted to do and Mm -hmm. he's just been there supporting me I'd be like hey I want to go to Honduras for a month to go work with spiny-tailed iguanas and swampers and he's like thumbs up that's awesome have fun That's, that's so cool that's it's so important to have a supportive partner he is and sorry um the reptiles like really aren't his thing Mm -hmm. he's just he's very accepting of them Mm -hmm. (laughs) and accepting that I've like taken over our entire house pretty much um Mm -hmm. but they're they're not like really his thing he's just super accepting and supportive yeah so I was was actually going to ask so you know you do want to go to Honduras for a month how is he interacting with the animals like is that something he's comfortable with is to a point um I did on top of the two Cayman trips that I did I did go to Honduras for a month um Mm -hmm. to Utila specifically the little island off the coast um Mm -hmm. to work with the swamp iguanas out there and he did to a most part take care of all of my animals Mm-hmm. And at that point, this was like a little bit later on. So I had a fair, a fair amount of stuff at this point. Cause we were in our house that we own and I've got like literally a full bedroom full of just reptiles, just mm-hmm. a reptile room. Right. Um, so he as, did take as care every of every lady should. Exactly. Um, I do have a pet sitter at this point <laughs> who I trust and who's nearby. Um, if I go away at this point, I'll just have like a pet sitter come by and mm-hmm. take care of everybody, especially considering I've got like a little diamond back now and some more advanced mm-hmm. stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So gosh, I'm trying to think to, like, where were we? So, um, well, so we hit the Reed park zoo, yeah, um, work wise <laughs> after <laughs> that, um, that's when I started doing more volunteer work at the local Arizona Sonoran desert museum. Okay. Um, they're quite, I think they're pretty world renowned at this point, um, mm-hmm. for being a large, like living museum zoo. So I volunteered there over a couple of years in a couple of different departments. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where I started working more with like falconry. Okay. So 
it was do I worked in the um the IAC, which what does that stand for? Um, I can't remember. But <laughs> basically it's like the oh, interpretive animal care collection. That's what it oh, was. okay, yeah. So yeah. it's the animals that get used on grounds for like the little table talks, the glove yeah, birds, I was, things like that. When I was volunteering at the Cincinnati Zero, I was an interp. I love okay. it. It's yeah. just, it's, it is like, you're really, if you want to be hands-on with animals at the zoo, that's the department mm-hmm. to be in. So, um, both my job was like mostly taking care of those animals behind the scenes. And that ranged mm-hmm. from the great horned owls and hawks to our squirrels and pack rats to snakes and centipedes. So pretty right. much just about everything. So how, how many hours a week are you, are you working? Volunteering? Um, back then I was probably doing at least like five hours a week. So okay. nothing like too crazy, but usually like two th- to maybe two days a week I was out there. Mm-hmm. Um, after I was there for about a year and then mm-hmm. after that, I moved over to our Raptor free flight program, mm-hmm. which is more falconry. Um, it's the program. So the free flight program is basically, um, the glove trained birds that are free flown over like the audience. Mm-hmm. So it's ranging from, we've got like kestrels to a peregrine to uh Chiricow and Ravens, whole bunch of different stuff. Right. And uh, so that's where I moved into there. I was there for about a year, another season. Um, and then at that point it was just kind of a too long of a drive <laughs> for me mm-hmm. to continue volunteering. So- while you're volunteering there, do you have a full-time job that you're working at or are you just kind of doing a few volunteer I things? did have an actual job. Well, okay. So the other job that I was working while doing the volunteering at the Snoring Desert Museum was I was volunteering at another place called Tucson Wildlife Center. Mm-hmm. So they are a local nonprofit um, wildlife rescue rehabilitation facility. They've been Mm -hmm. operating for well over 20 years at this point. Mm -hmm. And I had started as just volunteer there. Um, I was in main animal care. So doing diet prep, cleaning, that type of work. Mm -hmm. And over the, I was there for three years. Mm -hmm. Over the years, I eventually worked my way up to being a volunteer shift leader for animal care. And then I became a volunteer at the other building, which was their annex. Um, And that was the building specifically for the nursery, like the baby birds, the baby squirrels, the baby bunnies, the anything baby, basically. Yeah. So became a shift lead over there, volunteer mm-hmm. there, and then I eventually continued to work my way up over the years, and I became the actual manager of the annex. That's so awesome. So I was one of like four paid staff members at mm-hmm. the wildlife center. Um, mm-hmm. So I was in charge of literally like the entire annex building, all of the babies, all of the volunteers, all of that. We had mm-hmm. hundreds of babies in there. Oh my God. Um, stop. You're making me so jealous. Ranging from basic like house sparrows and finches to grackles to barn swallows to doves, um, baby bunnies, baby squirrels. I mean, just everything, baby, baby quail, so many baby quail, Mm -hmm. everything. So you're mentioning like a lot of work with birds. Did you ever want, or did you ever, do you ever want to own 
birds. Is that something that interests you? <laughs> um, that's funny because I get that a lot. No. Yeah. Um, I, I love birds. I absolutely adore them, especially hawks and like falcons. Totally. I love them, mm-hmm. but I work with a lot of parrots and captive birds. And honestly, I love the ones I work with. I give them all the attention and love, but I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really ever want to bring a bird into my own home. I remember you oh. posted a picture a while ago of a, um, a toucan. Yes. So Skittles. So I, that is like a, when I, if I become a billionaire, <laughs> millionaire, like animal I want to have, I, I love toucans. Um, are you pet sitting for like exotic birds often, or is that through that rescue? Um, so both. So I okay. do pet sit a lot of exotic birds. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's absolutely under my pet sitting category mm-hmm. is birds. Um, anything from doves to giant macaws or yeah. a toucan. <laughs> um, Skittles, however, is part of the paradise parrot rescue that mm-hmm. I volunteer at. He's a resident there. He's not for adoption. <laughs> okay, cool. Cool. So you're mentioning, like we said, you did a lot of adoption. You really did like a lot of, like a lot of working with different organizations. Um, being that I focus a lot on encouraging women in reptiles, what did you notice that the breakdown was like with volunteers or staff at these organizations, as far as like men versus women and like what ages are people being involved and such? I feel like at least with the wildlife, um, it was a pretty even mix of mm-hmm. male and female, but mm-hmm. a lot of them tended to be older retired people yeah. a lot of the times because they have time to volunteer. Um, I actually got, cause I was maybe what, like 23 ish at this point when mm-hmm. I started becoming a manager there. So after becoming the manager of the annex building during like the spring and summertime, um, or I'm sorry, no, during like during the winter time when that shut down, Mm -hmm. um, I became a manager over at the main hospital Mm -hmm. and doing all like the medical assistance, um, intakes and exams for the larger mammals, like Mm -hmm. the hawks and the falcons, um, everything from snakes that we'd get in lizards to, uh, bobcats and javelinas. I mean, we dealt with everything. Um, and did you at this time, sorry, we're just kind of like jumping all over the place. I know, but I think I am so fascinated by you, Chelsea. I just want to know everything. I've got like two pages of questions and I'm just going to keep going through them. So when you're doing all of this really like, you know, and pretty intense work with native species. Um, and you mentioned that you didn't have like a formal college education. What mm-hmm. was the process like of getting certified for a wildlife rehab in your area? Um, so because I was going through the organization, it wasn't like I was trying to do that on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, it was basically just a lot of hands-on training, mm-hmm. a lot of hands-on training. And I did take a cl- couple classes here and there, um, for things, but a lot of just working with my managers and a lot of working with the vets that we had, because Mm -hmm. I was 
inevitably in charge of doing, you know, the x-rays and the intakes and all that kind of work, because as the assistant manager, I at times was living on the property on call 24 hours a day. And so you'd have somebody bring in a roadrunner at two o'clock in the morning, your butt would have to get up, go open up the hospital and go take an x-ray at the roadrunner at two o'clock in the morning, like by Mm -hmm. yourself. Yeah. You gotta do what you gotta do. Right. It's just a lot of, a lot of hands-on training really. Mm -hmm. Okay. What was the most common animal you were getting in? And then what's like the most unique animal you got in? Oh gosh. It was so many of the typical doves, so many doves, Mm -hmm. um, pack rats. Honestly, people would bring us way too many pack rats. What is a Um, pack rat? Okay. Sorry. Oh, a pack rat. I don't even know. Like, uh, of course a pack rat is a white throated wood rat, which is our native species out here. Okay. They're called pack rats because they make these huge middens of just junk and crap mm-hmm. and they'll notoriously Hence chew the up your wires when someone's and, yeah. a pack rat. I mean oh. their their nests will get like literally like 10 feet wide. They're huge, crazy. Okay. So pack so rats. You, so did most people bring those in? It was like what was oh, people would bring them seeing? in and they'd be like, oh, well, we trapped mom and then we found these babies here to <laughs> take care of the babies. And we're like, where's mom? Really? Like you just they killed mom and now oh, God. they give us the babies because they feel bad and they don't want to kill the babies, but they just killed mom. Like all stuff Love like that. that all the time. Um, so many baby bunnies. Everybody finds a baby bunny nests and wants mm-hmm. to bring them in. Yeah. Oh, do you struggle with um so I'm I'm pretty active on Twitter in the science like community um on Twitter and there's a woman named Jess in the wild that's her Twitter handle and she does wildlife rehab she is very vocal um and very against like people bringing in wild animals as pets. yes yes is that- absolutely horrible I- I was going to ask. So is that something you saw often? Like, oh, yeah, at this time of year, people are like, I found this raccoon. I'm going to keep it. And you see it, especially right now on TikTok. TikTok is yes. horrendous for that. Did you have those situations ever? Absolutely. Um, there were several birds that we would get in that were that came to us like imprinted on people oh, um, because people were like, oh, yeah, we're just going to raise this little baby. But mm-hmm basically everything that's raised by the public was done wrong and improperly. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the birds come in with horrible health, bad feather conditions. There's usually food caked all over their face. Um, it's just, it never ever goes well. How did you guys deem whether an animal was releasable or not? We tried um, a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. There was like, there was one grackle who he came and imprinted and we basically just like set him up in his own aviary outside and just like had absolute minimum contact other than just feeding and taking care of him. And he eventually kind of like became wild again, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So then he was released after that. We didn't have any problems, but it can be really hard for sure. Um, especially with the larger animals, sometimes they're just simply euthanized because that's the law, depending on like the actual situation, it, it just simply never goes well for anybody in the public 
to be trying to keep and raise anything, bird, mammal, whatever it is. And if it's a mammal, especially once they hit maturity, I don't care what kind of animal it is. Once they have to hit that sexual maturity, their whole attitude and behavior is going to change towards you. Mm-hmm. And it's like a wild animal again. Yeah. And I, once again, encourage people to listen to the episode I did with Alex Ash of Kinkatopia. If you're interested in getting yes. a wild animal, it's not always great. I, I was actually really just bad. thinking about that because we have that a lot with squirrels. Squirrels were yes. super oh popular. Why people would love squirrel. to keep squirrels. Well, they're yeah. super cute and friendly when they're babies, but as soon as they hit that maturity, they turn into adult wild squirrels and they give yeah. you the middle finger and bite you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's yes. I can only imagine. I mean, we see it with like I just work with a reptile rescue and all the time you're like, oh, I've took this box turtle in 20 years ago. I'm really like, mm. well, now it can't like, we can't release it, you mm-hmm. know? And it's like, you ripped something out of the wild and now we're yeah. stuck with it for the next 60 years. Absolutely. We're stuck with the consequences dealing with it. And so many caught cat, you know, cat caught animals. It, it's yes. So that was also a heartbreaking for you. Do you, I know you do rattlesnake aversion avoidance training, which um, we'll discuss. Do you notice that like in Tucson, in areas that have like venomous snakes and they're more prevalent, do you have a wild cat or a like stray cat population? And is that having like a negative effect on your native species? We do definitely have populations and pockets of stray cat feral population. Mm-hmm. Um, I that's kind of an interesting question. I haven't really thought about that. Um, I'm not sure if the rattlesnakes like really affects that or not, uh, but something that we do see a lot, which is really interesting with the snake avoidance training for dogs mm-hmm. is that a lot of the times we'll be training dogs that have, uh, a stray background or like came mm-hmm. in as a feral. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the times they're just very naturally, adverse to the snake training because Mm -hmm. they've likely already encountered these snakes in the wild and already Hmm. know what's going on. Okay. All right. So since we're discussing it, let's get into what you do with snake avoidance training. So like moving into present day, you have a part-time gig working with um, the wildlife. What is it? Wildlife, like relocation services. Uh, Yeah. Animal experts, animal experts, wildlife services. Right. So you got started there earlier this year. And mm-hmm. then I love seeing your posts about snake avoidance training. <laughs> what is that to someone who doesn't know? So the snake aversion training is basically training your dog that the smell, sight, and sound of a rattlesnake is bad. Mm-hmm. We're just teaching them to avoid rattlesnakes. And it is a bit of a specific training um, mm-hmm. for rattlesnakes because they have a different scent. Mm-hmm. So are most of the people that you're doing this with, is it just like people who live in neighborhoods? Is it people who have farm dogs? Like, is it just Oh, everywhere, anyone? everywhere, yeah. everywhere and anyone. Um, because okay. they are literally rattlesnakes are literally everywhere out here. You walk mm-hmm. onto your porch, there's a rattlesnake. You walk out into the sidewalk, there's a rattlesnake. You walk out into the wash, there's a rattlesnake mm-hmm. <laughs> <Or> everywhere. <laughs> And what species of rattlesnake are you usually working with? 
Uh, so Arizona actually boasts a very impressive, like 14 species of wow. rattlesnake out here, which is more than anywhere else in the United States. Yeah. Um, but most of what we out. do see, I, I know, <laughs> uh, most of what we see are the Western diamondbacks, uh, mm-hmm. pretty much like, like 90% of it right there. Mm-hmm. We do get some black tail, um, and some like tigers occasionally. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned crazy. that like it's like very scent based training um mm-hmm. is there different scents for like diamondbacks versus like other species or is it kind of like all rattlesnakes can be like all dogs can be trained to avoid all rattlesnakes based off just this one so the we have the scent base that we use is basically a bunch of rags that have been mm-hmm. in with all of the snakes okay. so the snakes that we use for training are wild caught diamondbacks so these are snakes that we go and catch on like relocation calls the Mm -hmm. oh it's on my porch it's in my garage those are the snakes that we go and pick up and we use for this training they're only kept in captivity for a maximum of like two weeks and then Mm -hmm. they get released after used for training okay so the reason why we don't use captive snakes is it changes the base smell of Mm -hmm. the snake to the dog Okay. So if you're feeding it like a captive diet of like commercial rodents, that difference is going to change and change the smell of the snake ever mm-hmm. so slightly, but that's not what a wild rattlesnake is going to smell like. Yeah, to the but dog. it's enough for a dog to do Right. The dog's smell is so much more obviously keen and way better than ours. Yeah. So uh, the other thing is that we don't like take out the venom glands either. Mm-hmm. Because uh, some people who do this training and have their captive snakes do just opt for like the venom gland removal or Mm -hmm. the defanging, but removing the venom glands also is another thing that slightly changes the smell of the snake. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine that's not, it's not the most ethical thing to do. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. Um, We don't ever want to hurt our snakes. We want to make sure that they're released just as fine as they were on day one. And we use a taping method. We make a little tape muzzle for the mm-hmm. snakes rather than doing the other like defanging or defanging. It's like, it's the cutest thing. Like I know it's going to be cute, but they look like tiny Hannibal Lecters. Like it's, I know it's, everybody always comments on them. I just think it's so fun. I remember the first time I saw it and I was like, what the fuck <laughs> is she doing? And then I was like, oh, that's her job. It's um, just, it's, and it's really just like three little simple, tiny slices of medical tape. Yeah. That's, that's all it is. I'll include um, a picture of it on the Modern Medusa Instagram okay. for anyone who wants yeah. to see, cause it's, it is really cute. So, um, and then the so- tape is taken off right after training. So mm-hmm. it's not like staying there. Yeah. So walk me through what this training is. So say I am like, hey, I want you to train my dog on rattlesnake aversion. What does that look like? So it's a two-person job. Um, mm-hmm. the, there's the actual dog trainer, and they use an electric collar, like okay. a shock collar. Um, because if your dog actually does get bit by a rattlesnake, mm-hmm. the pain response from that bite doesn't register until like up to even possibly a few minutes later. Mm-hmm. So the dog is not associating that snake that bit it with the pain that it's feeling a few minutes later. Okay. Yeah. So the shock collar gives us that instantaneous response basically. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. So, and then I'm the snake person. I'm the mm-hmm. snake handler. So the first thing that we have set up is a scent station. It's a fake snake with a bunch of scent rags underneath it. And mm-hmm. these are scent rags that have been in with our captive snakes, which varies from the, the Western diamondbacks, the black tails, the tigers, the ones you're more likely to see here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all smelly and we have the dog go right up to it and get a good whiff and then the shot caller goes off oh crap it got me like what was that you know Mm -hmm. so that's teaching them that that smell is bad right and so then we go on to the next station which is our live rattling rattlesnake um using the wild pissy ones is good for this because they have a really good response Mm -hmm. um they, they just throw their tail into high gear and that sound is going. And that way the dog can associate like literally looking at the snake up in this like S defensive pose. It's Mm -hmm. looking at it. It's hearing the rattle and it's smelling it all at the Mm -hmm. same time. And like, as soon as the dog pays attention and cues off to the snake you get another zap. It's like, bam, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and then we go through a couple more stations, pretty much a similar, the same kind of thing. Um, and what we're doing at this point is creating a large bubble around the snake. So if the dog looks at it from like five, six feet away, and that's when it gets the zap is the dog associates, oh crap, it can bite me from six feet away. Mm, okay. So in turn, it creates this nice bubble radius that the dog won't enter mm-hmm. because it thinks it can still get it from like five, six feet away. Mm-hmm. And does it usually just take like one day of training for this? Honestly, this whole thing usually takes like 15 minutes. Oh, really? Like and per dog. Notice, and you'll notice like a reaction that absolutely it, you, it happens really quick. And have you heard from owners after the fact that it's worked well? For sure. Um, it's really, really dog dependent as well, mm-hmm. though. So Is it species some, dependent? Do you notice that? Like for the snakes or for the dogs? For the dogs. Like, are you noticing that certain species is, sorry, not species. I, <laughs> my breed. God, I'm, it's <laughs> too reptile. I know. <laughs> no, are you noticing that it's like breed specific that for the dogs? It very or? much is to a point. Um, okay. It's just very kind of individual based. Certain mm-hmm. breeds do have patterns with training um some dogs get it really fast and all it is like one zap at the beginning and it's like Mm -hmm. they've got it some dogs are really hard-headed and you just have to like keep going at it and sometimes they just are a little dumb honestly (laughs) i'd say for like 90 percent of the dogs it works beautifully there is a small percentage of just like really hard-headed sick dogs so mm-hmm. and are you noticing that it's best to do this with adult dogs with puppies like what are you uh, we have like a with? six month minimum age okay minimum, why is that? six months uh they tend to just like not have those other behaviors basic kind of commands and manners at that point when they're so young mm-hmm. um so it's best to have them at least a little bit older like six months um and with older dogs especially sometimes like once they start having problems with like their hearing and their vision and stuff we kind of stop doing training with those older dogs because it just doesn't work quite as well yeah. So is this a training that's kind of a one-time thing or should dogs get it as they continue to grow up as like a reminder? 
So some dogs, it's like a one and done. You're good for eight years. You know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we've tested dogs who, so we do, um, refreshers and like retests. Mm -hmm. So if your dog after training goes up to a rattlesnake or any snake, honestly, Mm -hmm. you can give us a call and be like, I want to recheck my dog. And we will put another rattlesnake in front of your dog and watch the behaviors and make sure that that avoidance is still there. Mm-hmm. So, because a lot of the times people will call us and be like, oh, well, the, the dog went up to a snake, but it wasn't a rattlesnake. And yeah, so that's not what it was technically trained against. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, but then we can still put a rattlesnake in front of that dog and it's perfect avoidance. So the dog absolutely knows the difference between a rattlesnake and a not rattlesnake Mm -hmm. basically. And we do have people calling us afterwards and being like, Oh, you know, my dog alerted me to the rattlesnake in the backyard. Like it worked perfectly. We have that happen all the time actually. So it does absolutely work. And we, we have saved people and dogs with this training. That's awesome. So you mentioned that you put like the reptile in front of the dog, the snake in front of the dog. What are you doing to make sure that the snake itself isn't getting too stressed? Like, are you monitoring the animal after these Absolutely. training sessions? Um, so we don't let the dogs get within closer than like two, three feet. So okay. we don't even let them enter like that radius mm-hmm. um, for the snake safety as well, because some of these are really big dogs and like yeah. one stray step would kill the snake. So yeah. And especially me personally, I'm like there for the stakes. I'm super careful. I, I get a little bit of a flack from other people because I, I treat the rattlesnakes so gently. Um, <laughs> you know, I try to be very polite with the snakes and try to be uh, just nice. Like I try to be a kind and caring alien abductor. <laughs> Yeah. Good. Right. I so think you should, you I, I know? treat them with respect. Work. I want to make sure that I, I take the tape off right after we're done with training. Like usually before we even get in the car again, the tape's off. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you when do I that? Get how do you put the tape on and off? So it's a bit of a work secret. Um, but basically okay. we okay. just use like really long forceps to put, hmm. you know, hold their head and put the little tape on. And I use this, yeah. I use forceps to take it off as well. Mm-hmm. And um, I assume knowing you and knowing your background, you are not ever handling these animals without like (laughs) tongs or not tongs with Uh -uh. hooks. Yeah. I have not been bit and I do not plan to be bit. I don't ever want to know the feeling of being envenomated. (laughs) I don't (laughs) want to know that pain or Mm -hmm. that bill. Um, Oh my God. Yeah. Yes. I always, always use my equipment and tongs, even when the tape is there. I mm-hmm. will always use my tools. And do you do this with your captive animal too? No. Um, so like I said earlier, he, um, he stays out of this. He's no, not but I mean, part you're using tongs and uh, you're using your hooks and everything as well. Oh yeah. With my own captive reptile, yeah. my, my diamond back. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's what I figured. Just was just curious. Um, <laughs> yeah. Cause I can imagine that in your area, there's a lot of people who have, um, little macho attitude mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Yep. Yeah. He loves to see those <laughs> news articles. Not me. <laughs> Not me. Uh, so this is your part-time gig, but your full-time gig really is this exotic pet sitting. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. So tell me more about this. So it got started with the iguana lady. Yeah. What does this look like now? So 
when, so after I start, after I was at Tucson Wildlife Center, um, I started working at a local exotic store called Ever Evolving Exotics. And mm-hmm. I was there for, with them for a couple of years. And when I was working there, I heard I, just countless stories, horror stories of people coming in and they'd be like, oh, well, we left you know, we left the bearded dragon or the crested gecko with a neighbor and it died. Or I just so many horror stories of people who didn't know exotics trying yeah. to look after exotics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Horrible. Cause you can't just teach someone out of the blue. <laughs> there were some really weird stories. Um, like one of my favorites was really innocent, but really weird was mm-hmm. the sitter couldn't figure out how to make like Pangea Rapashi mix. Mm -hmm. And so the people came home and the gecko's food dish was filled with watered down calcium powder. Oh my God. So they, how long were they gone? (laughs) I don't, the gecko didn't die or anything. So it couldn't have been horrible, but (laughs) they came home to the food dish, literally like filled with just calcium powder mixed with water. Like it was really weird. Mm-hmm. Just oh, so basically I was working at the store and, you know, these customers and everything, and people were always asking us if we did boarding. Mm-hmm. That was always a question we got and we didn't, there was no room. We had our own animals. Right. Um, and you don't want to introduce other people's animals. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. You wanted to be very careful about cleanliness. Mm-hmm. So after a while, I just kind of started thinking like, that's what I should do because I should start pet sitting for exotics. Like I've got the knowledge and the resources and the responsibility and drive to do that. Mm-hmm. And being, being like my own boss and my own scheduler, um, was a really big part of that drive for me. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm, I'm somebody who's very self-motivated, right? Like, so I can, I can have this like really weird, crazy schedule and still keep things on track. Yeah. Um, and you're also, you're doing something you really like. <laughs> it is. That's a big thing. And like, I really love working with this huge range of animals and mm-hmm. being able to take care of them because I know the struggle personally of trying to find somebody to watch your exotics. Yeah. So I started doing this. Um, I got my official business license on August 1st of 2018. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm an LLC at this point. Um, I do everything from boarding, in-home care, grooming, um, enclosure cleaning, setup, supplies, food prep. I mean, Mm -hmm. pretty much anything that falls under exotic animal care. Yeah. So you, and this is all in your home for the most part. Yes. Um, so we had like a really weird front living room to our house Mm -hmm. that we never used. It was like literally just an empty room for years. (laughs) It was like made for this. Exactly. And so when I first how how could your husband say no, you're literally like, listen, (laughs) Oh, I didn't give him much of a choice. (laughs) Um, and so I was like, Hey, you know, I think I'm going to start this like pet sitting business and we could totally convert that front room into a boarding area. And so that's exactly what I did. Mm -hmm. Um, we had a large custom gate made for that front room. So that way my two large Oilers are not Mm -hmm. going in there at all. They're not like pestering anybody. So the dogs aren't allowed in there. 
it's the very first room you come in when you open the door. So I don't have to like drag people through my house or anything. Right. Um, and it's, it's a nice sizable room. It's set up with a couple of shelving units, a large table. Um, and I can pretty much move around to accommodate whatever I need to board. Mm-hmm. Cause you, and I'm, I'm going to post a picture of the room as well, like on your website, what it looks like. You do take in people's entire enclosures with their animals. Mm-hmm. And what so, is the typical length of like people being gone? Are you boarding your animals? It for? really varies. I give people an option to either A, bring their own enclosure and supplies and decor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to be the cheapest boarding option because then you're just paying for space and food mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't want to deal with dragging your entire enclosure around, um, and all of that hostel, you mm-hmm. can use my, my stuff. I have supplies and tanks and closures available, all the lightings, so many 40 gallon tanks. Um, and you can use my supplies. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more expensive because then I have to freaking clean everything afterwards. Right. <laughs> um, so I give people the option. People do frequently bring their full large enclosures, especially if they're boarding for a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, Sometimes I'm boarding things only for like three days, you know, a long weekend. Sometimes I've got one snake here who I've been boarding for over six months. Oh, wow. So it's a very per situation. Mm-hmm. What, what's the snake that's been there six months? Uh, military guy. He's deployed. It's ah, a ball okay. python. Awesome. So in your like... I think what you do is really, really cool. Um, and you're very dedicated to it. Um, I follow your page. You differentiate yourself in my mind because you have the knowledge of like proper cleaning and making sure animals are healthy. So you just recently had an issue with a chuckwalla. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about like, you know, what you do to keep animals that are in your care healthy and then what you do to handle any issues that may arise? Yeah. So a lot of, um, a lot of that medical training and cleaning, uh, for me came from working at the wildlife center Mm -hmm. because we were working with so many different wild animals. We had really strict cleaning protocols, quarantine procedures, all of that. So a lot of my very cleanliness comes from that. Um, I personally use F10 pretty much Mm -hmm. to clean like everything. Um, anytime my supplies are used for boarding animals afterwards, everything, enclosures, um, bowls, dishes, decors, anything that was touching the dragon, even tongs and feeding equipment, everybody has like their own separate stuff that doesn't Mm -hmm. get used for anybody else while they're Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. So I'm very careful about keeping things separated. Um, I'm careful about handling one animal and then like going and directly handling another one. I try to be really good about, you know, washing my hands or using hand sanitizer between. Um, Mm -hmm. I do take in some medical cases um, because I do have the training and experience to kind of do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I've got one dragon here right now who she's got really severe gout. Um, and she's on quite a few medications and everything. So, but like, I don't charge extra for that. I don't Mm. charge extra for any kind of additional medical care because Mm -hmm. I feel like if you've already gone to the vet and gotten your medications and your exams and all of the medical work, then Mm -hmm. I don't want to charge you more 
for doing so, the right thing. Let's talk about this experience with the Chuckwalla. So this yes. one, um, but just tell me what happened. <laughs> and then so, I want to talk about how you handled that with like an owner being gone. Yeah. So the Chuckwalla, she's um, housed at one of my regular clients, the Saguana lady, and mm-hmm. they live in a large outside enclosure. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very, so they're San Esteban Chuckwallas specifically. Mm-hmm. So those guys come from a small island. There's really no kind of like water out there. So they're a very um, drought tolerant species. They mm-hmm. mostly get all of their water from like morning mist and dew on the plants. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a big, uh, a high risk of them forming like bladder stones and such mm-hmm. in captivity. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of her Chuck Wallace, Fred, the male had recently had bladder stone surgery. He had one removed, I don't know, like two months ago or something. Mm-hmm. And then, so she left on her trip to go to iguana research <laughs> and <laughs> as um, one does. Yes, of course. And I'm doing that on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so then we honestly didn't even like know that pebbles was gravid. Like she didn't look huge or bloated or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I saw like, I opened up their night box one in the morning and there's just like two eggs laying there. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> well, hello. Like totally surprised. Um, they were infertile, very soft okay. and squishy. Mm-hmm. So they're only like what pebbles is like three this year, like maybe mm-hmm. four. So still pretty young. And they don't um, have any issues being cohabbed. Like. In no, actually, they live really well issues. in pairs. Okay, cool. Um, and it, like, it's a really large outdoor enclosure. Like, they've got, like, a bajillion hiding places out there. Mm-hmm. Um, she can get away from him if yeah, she needs to. definitely. <laughs> and so over the next couple of days, we just kind of, like, kept finding more eggs scattered around the enclosure. Um, so, and they were obviously infertile. And we found, like, two a day for the next three days. So she laid mm-hmm. six all in all. And, of okay. course, she was, like really just kind of lethargic afterwards, you know, very deflated and very just tired. Um, we gave her some special care, made sure she was eating enough, everything like that. Mm -hmm. And so we got her into the vet appointment, um, which is an amazing local clinic here, orange Grove. We've got Mm -hmm. one of the best exotic vets like in the state. And so he took an x-ray. We just wanted to make sure that she was done laying. And we were like, oh, well, there's a seventh egg in her. There's this huge one big solid mass left in her. But because the vet appointment was like a week after the fact, like after she had laid, there Mm -hmm. was a pretty thick layer of like uric acid around it. Mm -hmm. And so at this point, it was too large to exit her naturally. Like she couldn't push it out on her own anymore. Mm -hmm. So scheduled her surgery and everything. Um, Jill just got back on like Monday of this last week. Um, Mm -hmm. so, and surgery was today. So she texted us and let us know that surgery went well and that she's back home already. Um, but it turns out it wasn't an egg at all. Mm -hmm. It was a really large bladder stone. And it is, and this is another one I will post a picture of. It is massive. 
her eggs were way bigger than I had envisioned as well. So I, that size didn't even like surprise me if it had been an egg because they looked huge. Um, but yeah, so it ended up being another bladder stone. And part of why that happens with a chuck wall is, is because they're getting too much moisture in Mm -hmm. captivity. Mm -hmm. Um, that's, so that's what Dr. Jarko said. That's causing it is they're just getting like too much moisture and water content in captivity because they're so that's drought so fascinating. tolerant. Because I yeah. would imagine that it would happen because they didn't have enough water. Right. No, it's like the exact opposite. <laughs> yeah. So what was that like as far as like communicating with the owner? Do you have like any sort of like fine print of like if it needs vet care, like we will get it to them. I do. I so like on my pet sitting forms and contracts, I have them write down their preferred vet. If they don't Mm -hmm. have one, I have them suggested Mm -hmm. um, that they can choose one from. And then I have a little thing down there that they have to initial. Um, you know, if necessary, I give pet sitter permission to seek medical attention for this animal kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So and it, she, Jill is always, um, you know, very, if we, if we know something needs to go to the vet then like, we can just take it to the vet. Um, but she was on a boat in the middle of the ocean, like traveling when this yeah. was happening. And so communication was kind of spotty, but thankfully this was a client who we've been working with for years and I knew what to do, but things like that do absolutely happen. So have you had other, uh, my question then is, have you ever had clients come in where you can tell that they're not taking care of their animal? And what do you do when that happens? I do. Um, so a big part of my job for both boarding and in-home care is also what I call it is the husbandry consultation. Mm-hmm. So basically this is me just talking to whoever it is about animal care and what mm-hmm. they could do to fix or improve it. Um, mm-hmm. because a lot, I could, Oh my gosh, so many bearded dragons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I take care of so many bearded dragons. I've got four boarding here currently right now, um, mm-hmm. with a fifth one getting dropped off next week. <laughs> oh my God. And so, but bearded dragons, um, considering bearded dragons are so popular, but as I'm sure, you know, it's like, they're not well cared for usually with beginners. It's the (laughs) the information you find on Google and like, it's just horrible compared to what it should be. That they are not a beginner species. I I absolutely agree. I had a bearded dragon for one week that I was going to (laughs) foster through the rescue I work with Mm -hmm. horrible experience. It, it just so a level of difficulty that I was so not prepared for, which sounds dumb. Honestly, they are. They are very difficult. They're very time consuming. They like, and just like the actual not get proper, it to eat greens. the proper setup alone is way more expensive than yes. people ever imagine. And I, and they are, there are too many of them. Yes. It's like, that is, I am so many I'm pretty dragons. anti-bearded dragon but yeah that's, <laughs> that's mostly what I take care of a lot of bearded yeah. dragons I've seen a lot of weird looking bearded dragons um from like really weird breeding like those like pug-faced looking ones they're starting mm-hmm. to look weird um mm-hmm. but basically so a lot of the people who find me online are beginner reptile people like this is their first dragon oh it's my kid's dragon that's very common mm-hmm. um and for the most part people tend to be extremely well receptive 
to me suggesting things, you know, oh, well, this is, you know, you should upgrade your enclosure size. Oh, well, this is the lighting that you should be using. And Mm -hmm. this is why you shouldn't be using this. So I'm very good at like explaining the reasoning Mm -hmm. why of why things need to be changed and done and the differences between the products. So I, I help a lot of people navigate that initial kind of husbandry thing. And I give them suggestions. I say, Hey, if you're on Facebook, like join this group, join this group. I'm actually working on a full, um, like resources page on my blog for on my website. Like I have like a resources blog Mm -hmm. and I kind of want to use that as like helping point towards people, good sources of information. Yeah good yeah. sources of information. That's really hard to find. Mm-hmm. So yeah, absolutely. And there, and then you, you said it best, like there's a lot of information out there and most people aren't getting bearded dragons or leopard geckos from the best sources. Right. So a lot of people <laughs> just tend to feel really overwhelmed in the beginning, which is absolutely totally accurate because it is, it's extremely overwhelming trying Mm -hmm. to look at all this information. And then you've got 12 different people telling you 12 different things and Mm -hmm. you don't know what to listen to or what to follow. And there's different products, but there's slightly variation. I mean, it's just crazy. So I just really help people kind of start navigating through that and tell them exactly what they do need. That's awesome. So you've said you've had this officially since, do you say 2017? Uh, End of 2018. 2018. Okay. So what, what has your growth looked like? Have you seen that? Oh, sorry. to hit the microphone. Um, that as soon as you started offering it, like you've had a lot of people interested. I did. Um, so when I first started, I was still working at that store. Um, mm-hmm. I eventually ended up leaving there to pretty much work full time on the pet sitting, um, mm-hmm. because I did have a lot of interest in it and it did take off rather quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I I was pretty good about not like overloading myself. I wanted to make sure that I could still keep everything at a good quality and not Mm -hmm. like be rushing through things. Yeah. Um, So I just, you know, I felt like there was the need for it and there certainly was, Mm -hmm. and it still is. (laughs) And with people traveling right now, again, like, I mean, last year was slow. There was business here and there, but it was slow overall. Mm -hmm. Um, But this year, just like within this last month, since people are traveling, my phone is like going off the hook. My boarding room is like packed full right now. It's people are just going crazy. Mm -hmm. So what is your um, favorite animal that you've had come through that you've, you've pets at? Oh, I do have to admit, I really love the furry ones. Oh, um, blasphemy. So I you know. don't. So you don't work with like cats and dogs, but what kind of furry animals are you getting through? The small mammals. I have okay. a lot of boarding rats, uh, guinea mm-hmm. pigs, rabbits. Um, I haven't done any ferrets yet, but a lot of rats. I love rats yeah. and bunnies. Um, I so, do have some cool reptile borders come through though, mostly snakes. I'm, I'm a big snake person. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had some like green tree pythons and My some favorite. really cool, like Madagascar hog nose and stuff like that. So, and, um, the birds that you've been working with, what was that like, um, like learning curve wise, do those come board at your place or do you usually go out and, and do those at people's homes? So for bird boarding or birds in general, I do prefer to do in-home um, mm-hmm. just because 
it's just the birds get less stressed. They're a lot more comfortable in their own environment. Um, and because I do have two dogs at home, a lot of birds, even though they're not like allowed in the boarding room, a lot Mm -hmm. of birds tend to get stressed out with that. So I don't do a ton of bird boarding here. I try to stick to reptile and small mammal. Yeah. Which I think makes sense. Um, so you mentioned a lot about like cleaning thoroughly between new animals coming in and such. Do you have any protocol for working with your animals versus working with the animals that you're boarding? Um, I do to a point, I definitely have like my cleaning utensils. I have two different sets. Mm -hmm. Um, I have full scrub pads just for boarding and I have my own whole set for my own personal animals. Mm -hmm. Um, I do always make sure to like wash my hands and like I try to like, usually like my shirt, at least I'll like change my shirt between working with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was mostly just like basic stuff, different mm-hmm. cleaning supplies and changing my shirt. I haven't really had anybody come through boarding that I've been too concerned about. Mm-hmm. They're for the most part, pretty much all really healthy dragons and animals overall. That's so nice. That's, that's gotta be like refreshing. It is. It is. And I do ask people when, like, when we're talking about this, you know, about the medical history, if there's been any previous issues, if there's any weird behaviors, Mm -hmm. um, anything that has like had mites in the past or previously, like Mm -hmm. that's a big no, (laughs) um, don't bring me an enclosure that's like had past mites or something. Even if you don't think it's an issue anymore, please don't bring that to me. Like I will provide an enclosure. Um, but it hasn't (laughs) been anything too bad. Good, good. And then, so I want to make sure, okay, I can't believe what we've already been talking for like an hour and 20 minutes. Oh, dang. Um, uh, crazy. But I want to make sure that we like can talk about what you keep. Specifically, you got into iguanas after meeting the iguana lady. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, go ahead. So I've got my two, my two rhino iguanas, um, mm-hmm. which is funny because like back in the Back in the day, <laughs> the rhino iguanas were like my dream species. Mm-hmm. They were like my goal, my favorite. I was like, I dreamed about rhino iguanas and I loved it. And I never what was thought it about that was, them? you know, I'm not even sure. It was just the way that they look mm-hmm. and those horns and that face and that blue spike on, I don't know. It just, I loved them the most. (laughs) Yeah. And I never thought I was going to have an opportunity to like have that, let alone keep one. Mm -hmm. And then I met Jill and you know, she, every year she's like, you want some eggs? Like, do you want some babies? And I'm like, no, no, like I I can't, I'm not ready for that yet. Like I I can't make that commitment. But -hmm. then finally one year I was ready. I was like, yes, like let's do it this year. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we literally hatched them from eggs. Oh, that's so such a cool experience. The two that I have are technically her like third generation. So she's got the grandparents and then the parents. And then, so I've got the grandbabies mm-hmm. and I love them. <laughs> oh, that's, that's so cool. So you have, okay. So let's like, just do a quick rundown. I think your iguanas are incredible. But besides the iguanas, we've talked about your Wilma python. We've talked about your ball python. We've talked about some of your geckos. You're also like really into land snails, which is also very cool. <laughs> yes. So the can land you talk snails, about that? The land snails are a bit of an oddball one. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I got them a few years ago. I started from a local school teacher. He mm-hmm. had caught some from like his backyard and he mm-hmm. was keeping them as like little classroom pets. And yeah. snails were something I had really been wanting to find for a while, but we're out here in the middle of the freaking desert. Like there's not a ton of snails. Mm-hmm. And so I got this opportunity to take home this little tank of snails from the school teacher. And I'm like, heck yeah. So that's what started this. And, um, I've, I've, they've been going strong for a few years now. Um, (laughs) and snails are honestly like a lot more to it than you would ever think. What do you Um, mean? So they can be kept on like a basic bioactive type enclosure setup, you know, just basic mm-hmm. springtails, like things like that. Mm-hmm. But the, the breeding, culling and population control that goes into snails yeah, is snails. <laughs> way more complicated than most other things. So like people mm-hmm. who breed bugs, like roaches, super common example, everybody's got roaches, literally mm-hmm. thousands of them. You just let them breed and take out what you need and whatever. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Snails is like totally opposite. You have to be so selective about which ones actually make it to adulthood. So hmm. And they, they are technically hermaphrodites, so they can self-fertilize mm-hmm. even in the species of land snail that use a love dart to mate. They can still self-fertilize. That's so interesting. Okay, so for people who don't know, what is a love dart? The love dart is the <laughs> snail's little genitalia, technically. Mm-hmm. So it's like a little, it's literally like a sharp dart um, that is coiled up like a spring inside mm-hmm. of like the side of their neck. And then they find another snail and then like shoots at the other snail. And then that's, that's how they transfer their fluids. (laughs) Oh, wow. The birds and the snails, snails everyone. Yeah. (laughs) So So, what species is it specifically? Like you have land snails, but what species specifically is it? These are the common garden snails, the cornu espersum. Okay. Um, They're technically native to like Europe. So African land snails aren't legal in the U.S. Super, super illegal. Yes. Yeah. Which would be really cool to keep. I really like those. Honestly, like even if I had the opportunity to, I don't think I would want to. Oh, why is that? They would, that would be so messy. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Like just the snails that I have already. This The one thing I always have to warn people about is snail poop everywhere. Snails Mm -hmm. are little poop machines. They poop every freaking five minutes. (laughs) You will have little rainbow colored coil turds on every part of your enclosure, plants, (laughs) walls, everything has snail poop on it. And like having a snail that's like five pounds, like, no, thank you. I think they're so cool. (laughs) I just Um, can't imagine trying to clean up after a snail that big. So you recently created like a, uh, a local snail keepers group, right? Yeah. Um, so there's actually a lot of legalities that go around snail keeping, mm-hmm. um, legally with the department of environment, department of agriculture, technically you have to keep and find snails within your own state. Okay. So Arizona I have to source and find all of my snails in Arizona and I can only sell to other people in Arizona. Mm -hmm. 
anything. Do you know why? Any, because they're they're worried about invasive and spreading more species further than they already have. Um, it's really just an agriculture thing. And a lot of people still move snails illegally, technically, Mm -hmm. even just driving across like state lines would be technically illegal. Um, Mm -hmm. Shipping them over state lines is illegal, but people still frequently buy snails off of like Amazon, Etsy, like You can get snails on Amazon? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can buy live snails off Amazon and like other places like that, but it's going to be more than likely illegal unless the seller is in your own state. And then you have to worry about, well, the seller quality, because like I was saying, the snail population and control with genetics is very specific. So you could be getting poor, poor health snails. The -hmm. chances of them coming in cracks from like shipping is really Mm -hmm. high. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of things can happen. So when you, are people who are buying, okay, this is like, I'm going to ask you make a generalization. People buying snails off of like Etsy or off of Amazon, are they trying to use that for like gardens or are those people who are keeping them as pets? No, they're pretty much pets. Okay. They're pretty much pets. I don't know mm-hmm. why, maybe it was like the uptick of COVID or something, but for some reason around that same time, snails became super popular pets. <laughs> Like for some reason, all of a sudden, like everybody and their kid wanted a pet snail. Mm -hmm. It just blew up. I don't know what happened. Do you sell your snails? I assume. I do as both feeders and pets. Mm -hmm. Um, So so, ask next, do you, like you said, you have to cull a lot of them. Mm -hmm. A lot of baby snails. I feed, I feed them to like my blue tongue skink usually is the most popular. He loves them. Mm -hmm. Um, my blue tongue skink, my giant African bullfrog, um, I, he enjoys them. My leopard geckos occasionally take a couple here and there. Um, I do use them as feeders for the bearded dragons who are boarding here too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a lot of people reach out to me and I still sell to the exotic shop um, mm-hmm. as feeders. So mm-hmm. that's how I get rid of my excess usually. So how many do you think you have right now? Oh, there's usually on average, probably about a hundred in there. Wow. And what do you, what's your setup like for them? You said you can keep them kind of bioactive just with like springtails, mm-hmm. isopods. What do um, you have yours in? They're just basic front opening 40 gallon exoterras. And I'm actually going to be setting up a full second snail tank here soon <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> because I, I want more snails. I need to see a picture of this because are they just like all over the walls? <laughs> yes, usually. Um, <laughs> I so just- I have mine live planted with croton grow oh, croton cool. plants mm-hmm. for some mm-hmm. reason that's like the only plant that they don't eat hmm. but so it's just um soil bioactive soil mixture of like topsoil cocoa sand cypress mulch basic um mm-hmm. leaf litter and springtail only okay Is- isopods are kind of a tricky double-edged sword with mm-hmm. snail keeping so if you just want like a couple of pet snails, cool, have your isopods, but more than likely the isopod population is going to get way out of control there's because so there's so much food from the snail poop to like the food you're actually feeding the snails, the isopods eat everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and once the population does get really thick of the isopods, it absolutely 
does affect the eggs and growth and health population of the babies. Like yeah. everything decreases, you know, mm-hmm. except for the isopods. <laughs> right. Exactly. Except for the isopods. So do you, when you're feeding the snails, are they herbivorous? Um, they do eat. Yeah. They do eat quite a lot of fresh salad. I try to feed them a varied diet of fresh foods. They do also get fed fed protein twice mm-hmm. a week. Mm-hmm. Um, snail protein can come in a lot of forms, but you're shooting for like 20 to 25% protein. I, I personally protein? buy, um, a snail specific food mix off of okay. Etsy. <laughs> Off of Etsy. See, Etsy yep. is like the snail shop. Gee. There's a, I Etsy do have that whole snail blog up now on my website as well. Um, okay, it covers, awesome. it covers like all the snail basic care and it has uh, food and link option protein in there. Oh, that's awesome. Well, that's a great resource for people. Um, yeah, super, super cool. So you mentioned that you breed and you do sell your snails. Um, earlier you said that animals that come into your care are in your care for life. Do you have any interest in becoming a breeder of any of the animals you keep in your personal collection or are you just a hobbyist? You know, not really. Um, I really have zero interest in like breeding anything actual reptile or animal wise. Um, Mm -hmm. even this year, people keep asking me if I'm going to breed the rhino iguanas, Mm-hmm. because this year, technically she could, this could be the first year she has eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I keep saying, no, I don't, I don't want to, I don't have any reason or motivation to like mm-hmm. breed. Um, I feel like there's overall generally enough of these animals out there. I don't feel the need to contribute or make money off of that. These rhino iguanas live 60 freaking years. Yeah. Like that's a life commitment. I'm not ready to, and I sold a lot of the other babies that we hatched with these two, mine two that I kept. Oh, so Um, did you have a full clutch? We did. We ended up having, I think it was like 12 babies in all that hatched. Um, Mm -hmm. We had some medical problems with one and a couple of them didn't make it, but we sold the rest of the babies. And honestly, like, I know for a fact that like half of the babies that I've sold to like other people who I thought were amazing people. I know like half of them are dead at this point. Yeah. Not like any fault to the people for half of them, you know, like weird things happened, but Mm -hmm. I just, I don't feel any need to continue breeding or putting more animals out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a a totally valid a totally valid and like very good feeling to have. Yeah. And honestly, like, I don't even feel like I'm really probably going to get many more things for myself, really. Mm -hmm. For one, I'm kind of out of room. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And for two, I, I'm really kind of at the point where I don't want to get more things. I want to continue to focus on what I have and continuously upgrade them. Mm Mm-hmm. So So, I just want to work on my own. Yeah. And I think that's phenomenal. Um, So you do cohab your rhino iguanas, correct? Mm -hmm. So how do you avoid them breeding if she's getting to the age where she can? Well, it's going to (laughs) happen. Yeah. Um, I I have a dig box for her and everything for her to lay. Um, I just don't plan on hashing them. If she does lay eggs, I will... I'll just feed them off to monitors or something. Mm-hmm. I've got friends with Savannah monitors and tegus. It'll make a nice snack. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, that's my plan. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, so I'm just going back through my notes to see if there's anything we didn't cover. Um, um, the only other place that I've worked at was, mm-hmm. um, our, the Tucson reptile museum. Oh, we I did cover that. Just, huh? I was, we did not talk about that. We talked about no? that before okay. I recorded. Oh, right. So, That's what it was. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the Tucson reptile museum. So the reptile museum is a nonprofit here. Um, we mostly do public outreach education, everything from our native species to captive care of exotics. Um, mm-hmm. We mostly do like just a lot of public outreach schools, um, STEM events, libraries, those types of things. We don't have a physical location. Um, Mm -hmm. It is something we tried to do, but before COVID hit, we were like right in the middle of it. We were like literally looking at a property to get and everything and it all went down the drain. So, but we are starting to get back out there. Um, We do have our first in-person scheduled event like next month or something. So we're excited to get back out there and do that. Um, Mm -hmm. But we do have a lot of exotic a lot of sulcatas, things like that. Um, people have given us and we use those animals for, you know, education. So Mm -hmm. that's awesome. So you've, I love your story. I think it's awesome to hear someone who has been so successful and didn't necessarily have the formal education background that a lot of people think you need. What words of advice or just like encouragement do you have for girls looking to enter the hobby or people looking to start their own reptile business or get into animals in some regard? Just keep trying. (laughs) Just keep trying to get in and take any opportunity that you can. Even if it's not a good starting opportunity, it will probably take you places and get you into other opportunities. That's really how I feel like I got to where I am today is just by I just kept raising my hand and said, sure, I'll help. Sure. I'll do it. Like whatever it was, I just said, sure, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. I think so, that's, I, you know, you got to clean up some poop to, to be exactly to lots of poop, to be. Um, mm-hmm. lots of just dealing with people, but you have to want to have the drive to do it and help the animals and help the people. Mm-hmm. Well, Chelsea, I am so grateful for you spending your Friday evening speaking with me. It means the world um, to have your support and your friendship. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I was so excited too. Um, So if people want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? Uh, So Scaled Sitting and Services is on Facebook and Instagram mainly. I do have a fabulous new website that's just gone live. Um, It has uh, several additional blog posts as far as snail keeping and like the beetles and bone cleaning, which is Mm -hmm. unfortunately something I think we did skip over. Shit. Okay, fine. We're going to, you know what? (laughs) Ignore this whole exit. We're not even going to stop yet. Let's talk about bone cleaning. Sorry, guys. That was a fake out. (laughs) Okay. So that, yeah. Jesus. How did I forget about that? You like are pretty into dead things. Not like in a weird way, right? Not in a a psycho way. Um, so (laughs) I, I feel like really my interest in the dead things comes from more of an appreciation really. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and wanting to continue that preservation and beauty after they've passed. Mm -hmm. So I, when did this start? Um, about 2018 is when, well, I've always been kind of into like dead things, but I never had a real way to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, so in 2018, I got my first dermestid beetle colony. 
So -hmm. these are little beetles. They're called flesh eating. Um, They clean up skeletons. It's what like museums use to clean their Mm -hmm. museum specimens. Mm -hmm. And so I started just picking up like roadkill steaks. Um, I had people with captive exotics. This is just another thing I can imagine your husband walking home to being like, oh, yeah, (laughs) he's uh, he's gotten used to that, too. He'll just like come home and I'm just like got some dead snake on the counter. And he's just like, all right. (laughs) Yeah, cool. Cool. (laughs) Um, So I started picking up like roadkill um, and I had a lot of people keeping exotics, obviously, and things happen. Pets pass away. So Mm -hmm. they would give me whatever they had in the freezer, really. Um, so, and then I just started skinning, prepping and cleaning these animals and feeding them to the beetles for bone cleaning. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do the, the hide tanning for the snakes and the reptiles, pretty easy process. It's really just two ingredients. Um, what, is it? what do you do for that? It's denatured alcohol. Or really any kind of like rubbing alcohol content, lower ones work as well. And D or, and uh, vegetable glycerin. It's a 50, 50 mix of those mm-hmm. two things. Mm-hmm. And you just put the skin in after it's been fleshed and cleaned and everything. And you mm-hmm. let it sit for about a week. And then you take the skin out and pin it to a board and let it dry. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's really like all that goes into it. Um, there's no breaking of the hide that you have to do like with mammal skins. Mm-hmm. They just like come out soft and pliable and they're beautiful. Um, I have a lot of skins and again, I use them for education. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of native species out here that look quite similar. Mm-hmm. And so we can bring these into classrooms and to camps and stuff. And people can see the actual difference of pattern yeah. and like be able to ID these snakes better. Yeah. I um, use, um, we have one with the reptile rescue I work with and I do educational yeah. programs and we have a hide or a skin and then we have a shed skin and it's mm-hmm. like fun to show the difference between the tail. It is. Um, and so then with the actual skeletons, the actual bone processing, um, everything from, deer skulls to a javelina skull to a bunch of snakes to geckos to pack rats. I mean, pretty much anything they will clean. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a Mata Mata turtle being cleaned mm-hmm. right now currently. So, so what is that like? Do you literally just put the skull in with the der- dermestead beetles? Yep. Dermestid. Um, dermestid, so okay. it's a lot of prep work and we have to like, you have to clean and gut and skin and prep all these animals for the beetles. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a lot of work. And mm-hmm. it usually takes me like a couple of hours to do prepping beforehand, which gets kind of tedious. And it's really kind of like the slowest part of the whole process is me. Um, so yesterday I had people over and I like defrosted my whole freezer, pulled everything out. And I had people come over and we just spent the whole day processing and preparing dead stuff. That's like, that takes a special group of friends. <laughs> it that's does. A- <laughs> I have wonderful friends. That's Very like, supportive. I love that. Are they reptile people or are they just, they like, are. We're all reptile friends. people. Okay. Cause I can imagine um, looking at my best friend who like 
Blake, I love you, but she would be like, no. Mm-mm. Yeah. Like, she doesn't love me that them, much. Um, she's on the board of the Reptile Museum with me as well. And then the other mm-hmm. one, she's actually a falconer and just trying to open up her own little oddities shop as well. Okay. Yeah. So, so you got a good group. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was great. We did some really amazing specimens and basically everything got refrozen that's prepped so I can just like toss it into the beetles as needed now and not have Mm -hmm. to worry about it so do you um when after you've like gutted the animals I'm trying to say it delicately but like Mm -hmm. that's kind of what you do do you get rid of like the organs and stuff yeah for the most part um occasionally we'll do like mummification for like the hearts hearts is usually what we save if anything on bigger stuff yeah um but yeah it's pretty much for the most part it just kind of gets tossed out um and then after so it's it's goes the processing of like prepping and then Mm -hmm. it goes into the beetles for actual cleaning Mm -hmm. and then once the beetles are done with it it goes into degreasing degreasing is really really critical step to quality cleaning and products Mm -hmm. um there's always going to be blood and grease and fat trapped inside of the bone when you're done Mm -hmm. so basically degreasing is just pulling out all of that and it can take months if not like up to a year for some things to degrease so how do you do that degreasing Generally with hot water. Um, so hmm. the old methods of bone processing were the old, oh, well, I'm going to boil it and bleach it. Mm-hmm. Well, those methods are kind of on the way out because they're quick, but they result in subpar quality. Mm-hmm. So proper degreasing, you only go up to like 115, 120 temperature wise. Mm-hmm. And you basically use Dawn, Dawn dish soap and like mm-hmm. ammonia and you <laughs> I wonder just, how the people at dawn would feel about this <laughs> you know dawn is super handy used for lots of stuff oh i used and, dawn, uh, my, my dad works for dawn like oh yeah works, yeah and i keep telling him like hey do you want to like sponsor me <laughs> yeah for sure i go through like, so you guys, much soap i'm like dawn and bounty you guys are missing out on the reptile market like, yeah really, really in there Um, So basically the water is just kept at like a hot 115 and the soap ammonia hot mix and the bones or whatever um, sit in this water for usually weeks, months on end. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll usually go through and I usually do a weekly check. I'll pull everything out, like kind of assess if I need to change the buckets and the water and clean. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a really important part. So, and then after things are actually degreased, mm-hmm. they move on to whitening. So, so how whitening, do you know when it's degreased? So if you, if you pull it out and you let it completely dry, I mean like mm-hmm. several days letting it dry, um, you should be able to see grease spots left. They'll show up okay. as like these yellow kind of dark blotches within this bone. Okay. And, that's and, and are you often, uh, so two questions before I get into whitening, when you have the water sitting there hot, um, how do you keep it warm? And then how often are you cleaning or changing out the water that it's sitting in? So I use a, um, thermostat with a large pool heating element. Mm-hmm. Um, so I use a hundred gallon, like stock made rubber tank, um, mm-hmm. with the water element. And then you just have, so you fill the whole 
whole container up with water, but then you have like individual five gallon buckets inside of your big bucket. Mm-hmm. And that's what you actually fill with like the soapy ammonia water is the individual five gallon buckets. So they're not underwater. So the big buckets, so the five gallon buckets are like sitting in the really big tub with the but they're water not heater. submerged. There's water in it. Right. So it's like um, sitting in a bath of hot water with then water inside. Oh, the water yes. ammonia. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's where the bones sit for okay. what feels like ever. Yeah. Make a nice little broth. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's smelly. It's a certain kind of smell. That's for sure. Yeah. Is this in your house? Is this like, it's in, in my garage? garage. <laughs> okay. I was hoping so. I was like, wait a second. <laughs> I was like, man, your husband really loves you. Mm, yeah. It's in the garage. Um, okay. And then so whitening is usually, I prefer to just use hydrogen peroxide. Mm-hmm. Um, some people use like chlorine or like pool cleaning chemicals. Um, mm-hmm. but I just prefer a good old hydrogen peroxide. And then do you do any sort of articulation? Like I'm trying to start. Okay. Um, I've mostly just done cleaning the articulation because I've mostly worked on really small things like snakes and geckos, nothing too crazy huge. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't really had the time or patience to do articulation, mm-hmm. but I just ordered three bone articulation, like building manuals. Mm-hmm. So I'm hopefully going to be starting articulation. Awesome. That's super cool. And that's, I've got a thing. couple of good projects to start with like a box Is- turtle, like the Mata Mata turtle, bigger things. Yeah. That'll be e- like, not easy, but easier mm-hmm. to start with. Is this something you share on your scaled sitting page or is there another page for people to find that? It is. Um, I do have the, I think it's called like bone processing and beetle cleaning. It's a blog page on the website. Awesome. Um, I haven't done anything with it yet, but I certainly plan to. Cool. Super, super cool. Okay. Here's the real ending of the podcast <laughs> because I'm very glad we got that in. So um, I guess we'll see how much I cut, but I was going to say, feel free to cut out like uh, some of the stuff from like the wildlife center or something. Uh, no, like, a we're long keeping time ago. all of that in. We are, <laughs> okay. I'm just talking about the things I fucked up. I don't care what my longest episode was like two and a half hours. I like to keep <laughs> it at an hour and a half because I think that's more manageable. Yeah. And also it's easier for the guests, but pff, right. fuck it. Um, also, sorry for cursing, but Okay. <laughs> So now that we've covered all of that, and here's the real ending of the podcast, remind people where they can find you. And, um, and if you have any last words or any last things you want to get in before we, for real end it, feel free. Um, yeah. So scaled sitting and services is mostly on Facebook and Instagram. And we have a new website that just went live recently, um, that has all of the pet sitting services in addition to several blog posts, uh, mostly mm-hmm. focusing on snails and bug cleaning and my trips to like Honduras working with the iguanas. Very, very cool. Awesome. So Chelsea, thank you so much for your time. It really has been so much fun talking to you. I think what you do is so cool. Um, Absolutely. I, I love talking about it. <laughs> Yeah. I, and your passion comes through, which is like very, very nice. So um, thank you again so much. And thanks to everyone listening. You can find me, um, Dominic DeFalco at DeFalco Reptiles on Facebook and Instagram. And then you can follow the podcast at Modern Medusa Podcast on Instagram. Chelsea, thank you so much. Absolutely. Um, it's been so much fun. And we'll talk at you next week. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening.